Hello and welcome to Explain Me. My name is Patty Johnson. And I'm William Pauheida. Today on the show, we have Artnet's national critic, Ben Davis. Hello, Ben Davis. Hey there, Patty. Hey there, William. Nice to see you. Yeah, we're really excited to have you on the show. Um, You seem like the perfect guest for our year-end review. Uh, We have several sort of uh, topics to um, dive into. But before we we get into that, I wanted to just uh, ask the same question that we ask all of our uh, um, guests on the show, which is just, especially since March, which is just, how are you doing? How's the... Uh, how are you weathering the pandemic? Um, are you still mentally stable? Are you okay. Are you yeah. okay? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm fine. Um, you know, I um, have been pretty much confined confined to the same uh, ten block radius for you know since since March, except for a dentist appointment um, last week, which was seemed absolutely thrilling like a thrilling adventure into the unknown. Um, and, uh, and, you know, towards the beginning of the pandemic, I was writing and speculating about what it would mean for thinking about art and, and seeing art. Um, and in the end, uh, it's just, it, it there was a point. I guess when there was a point in 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 this period when there was an early quarantine feeling that this was a scary but also exciting time where you're kind of figuring out how your routines and figuring out how things worked, figuring out the world was changing, and that's over and has been over for quite some time. And yeah. now it's just a grind and sort of just feels like low level depression all the time, where you're you, you kind of um, are, are, are circling the same room and um, with racing thoughts. And that's, that's where I am basically um, at, at this end of the year. Um, and, you know, keeping myself busy, but uh, kind of really hoping for this all to be over someday. William, how are you doing? And also, sorry, uh, before I, Ben, that sucks. Um, well, I, well, I, 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 I think that's, uh, I think I, I'm probably describing a pretty ordinary experience, actually. Well, that's the thing, for sure. Yeah, I, I was just on a, a panel discussion um, for my show at the Aldrich with Representative Jim Hines, uh, Connecticut Congressman to the House okay. of Representatives. And they were asking us how, you know, the, uh, pandemics impacted our practice or our lives. And I agree with you, Ben, there's a, after that initial period of sort of great change, it has become incredibly boring, you know, just this kind of sameness of the routine, but that's not all it is. It's also this like intense economic pressure, you know, all these other pressures have kind of settled in that you have to deal with pretty much alone. You know, it's like me and my partner, Kristen, and being alone all the time with those thoughts, you know, it, it, it can be more than like low level depression in some ways, you know, and trying to figure out how to work through that and sort of stay productive has been um, really challenging, but God, it's such a weird combination of utter boredom, 
and then intense pressure. You know? so, so, so Bill, it wasn't like for you at the beginning of it, there were like the artists or the people who are going to get through this the best because they're, they're used to being alone in their studio with their thoughts. That's not that, your experience. That, that, that there's a truth to that. Like it, it wasn't a huge change, at least in terms of cycling from the house to the basement and working, but then start removing all of the other things that can provide some level of pleasure <laughs> from that boredom, <laughs> right? No opening, running into people on the street to talk about what's happening in the studio. All of that just taken away and left with, here I am in the studio. I don't really know who my audience is anymore right now. I don't necessarily have anything on the horizon that I'm really working for. Or if I am, is it going to be still within the kind of quarantine period and the pandemic period, or is it going to be after? Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I certainly felt initially like, wow, this isn't a huge change, but slowly it's just become sort of worse and worse, you know? Uh, I don't love this studio. <laughs> I wish I could get out of here for like a year after this, you know? <laughs> what about you, Patty? Well, you know, I, I'm not, um, I'm not super depressed, uh, which feels like some sort of feat. Um, partially, I think, you know, my partner right now is very depressed and that's, uh, he suffers from seasonal affective disorder. Um, and the, this is the time when that, uh, tends to really set in for me. I, there is some, I think it's the time of year, um, that there's something about this time that when it gets dark outside, like, um, so so early there's a kind of warmth to that that i actually really enjoy um i definitely get tired of it by the time um february rolls around but this time is is kind of okay for me um and i am definitely past the stage that i am crying every day because i'm so worried about what will happen with the election you know i've definitely put that off um, and I have become, and I'm not proud of this, but fairly good at like, I'm not sure if this is a word, but like ostriching, like just, you know, knowing that I need to hide from uh, certain things just to get by. Like I cannot function if I follow all of these assholes in Washington and what the GOP is doing right now too close. And I feel like when we look back on this period in culture, this maybe gets from, you know, um, ourselves to a little broader conversation. When we look back on this period of culture, I think it'll be clear in a, maybe a way that's not clear to us because um, we're in it. That ostriching is really like defining the culture <laughs> at this <laughs> moment, right? I mean, and, in, in ways that I, I mean, and not just like the people, including myself, um, you know, you kind of oscillate between trying to be engaged and, and taking part in whatever, um, whatever kind of outward focused activist or artistic conversations there are, and then wanting to, to forget about it all and vanish into a video game or into streaming services. And like, I guess I was thinking about this with this ridiculous story about the monolith they found in the desert in utah where i mean i wrote about it 
Um, and, you know, I had a couple things to say about it that I, I, I thought, you know, made sense from an artistic um, perspective. But then thinking about it more, I was like, no, you know, what's really, what this story is at its heart is like the difference between how stupid the story is and then just like how little there is there. Cause it's just a piece of junk that people found in the desert. And then how big the reaction to it. That's the key feature. The difference between those things. It's just like people desperate for something to distract them. I mean, and it's, and it's really like, and, and, and it, it is so desperate. It's like the littlest thing. If you can get a conversation going about it. I mean, people are just ready to build an entire universe in their heads around it and vanish into it. And if you look at the comments on the videos about it, it's like, like the group of, of folks removed it um, from, from U the Utah desert. Um, and I was looking through the comments on the little video they posted about removing it. And it's just people like, people like so passionately attached to the, the fantasy they have built about this model. And not even like, I think, like, I think with, with a kind of a knowledge that, a knowledge that it is stupid and silly, but it's like, it's all they've got right now, you know? And literally is saying it just like, just like you're taking away the one thing that's keeping me, you know, <laughs> amused right now. Uh, this is like a, the perfect starting point and end point of, you know, the theme for today's show, which is sort of the review of 2020, which in some ways, you know, sort of working title for this one is the year that wasn't. But if the monolith is the end, and it is something so dumb, and you know, I've been looking at it through the lens of the art world where it's like, is it a John McCracken or not? And it's like, when you see the plywood interior of that thing, you're like, no. Or somebody was like, no, it's got, cur the edges are curled. That's a piece of shit, you know, this thing's garbage. But the outsized reaction to it was ridiculous and perfectly in line with meme culture. I was like, oh, it's planking, but it's vertical and it's an art object. Yeah. But it, the be it reminded me of the beginning of the pandemic when everyone was watching Tiger King. Yeah. You know, yes. and like just the kind of complete outsized reaction to something that probably would have, you know, lasted on the top 10 of Netflix for a couple of weeks or something. But it, it seemed to kind of capture the fact that everyone was sort of trapped in here was this thing that everyone could kind of look at and talk about and maybe a richer narrative than the monolith, but I don't know, maybe that's just a, uh, a invitation to think about where we began. No, I, I think that that's a, I think that there's like, I, I was looking at Google's, you know, year in search list yesterday and um, Tiger King was the most searched TV show of the year. <laughs> And, and I mean, that's not because it's, I mean, it's a memorable show in its way, but, but um, obviously it's positional or, you know, it's like uh, it, it, it dropped at the right moment and the moment when people were negotiating a new reality. And an interesting thing about, again, about the culture at large is that there's so much culture, you know, there's so much, there's so much images available to you in your home that, and, and, and the means of distraction are so sophisticated and, um, and, you know, eager to, 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 to help you vanish from your own thoughts that, um, that I, I do think that in, in some ways, yeah, it's, I don't think people in general have really reckoned 
with everything. You know, the conversation is, 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 is like, I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll just, we'll look back and, 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 and we'll see the, we'll see things much more clearly from what's happening now in the future, just because, because, um, we've spent a lot of the present, um, uh, in, in sort of, in in purpose-built matrix-like worlds designed to keep us from 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 self-analysis self-scrutiny you know that um that there was sort of like a corollary in the well there's like five million corollaries in different industries but like recently on twitter there was like a whole kind of conversation about cast iron pans and whether you should use them or not and this was like it kept, you know, I'm not really a cooking person or anything like that, but it kept popping up in my feed, like people getting really angry about this. Like, um, and there was somebody, William, who's, who said, I think it was yesterday, I was just like, I am so bored right now that I spent two full days talking about, like arguing with people over cast pans. Like somebody just, stop this and take me away you know and i felt like that was a very good summary of like what ends up happening you know you you're kind of bored you can't do um i do think though maybe ben as a as a counter i do think there is some um I don't know if it's self-analysis, but self-care going on. And those two things I do think um, tend to happen together. And I think that is showing up a little bit culturally. Um, you know, I think the, the two main polls that we're probably going to try to talk about today, one is art. And that's going to be a little bit more difficult because I got out like three times to see art in real life uh, this, this year. Um, so there's not a whole lot there, even though I think a lot happened in the art world. Um, and then the other poll is entertainment and culture and things that we were watching and streaming and um, whether it was for escape or just to deal with the isolation. Um, you know, these, these are the sort of two polls that I think we're going to have to try to contend with. And we'll probably lean a little bit more towards culture at this point. But my, my, I guess my middle position between those two things is that while there has been this desire to escape and to just kind of turn off um, thinking about things because so much has been sort of taken away, is I've also, you know, and Patty, I've talked about this a lot, you know, on the podcast since March, but have been engaged in sort of long-term, you know, organizing around the issues that have sort of come up uh, this year uh, that the pandemic really highlighted and then the Black Lives Matter protests around George Floyd's murder really highlighted in museums. And, I just quickly want to um, read like the like the first few things on Holland Cotter's best of list this year uh, that sort of mattered uh, in the art world were monuments, museums, organizing, restitution, and like indigenous presence. And there's more on that list, but these were the first things that kind of popped out. So on one hand, I, I totally understand at a personal level, spending an enormous amount of time just kind of watching TV shows, or I think I spent a month playing a video game at one point, just, you know, if I wasn't doing any work. On the other hand, there's been a lot of intense analysis of like what's been happening uh, in the art world, particularly within museums and galleries that I think we'll probably get to at some point in today's no, discussion. No, you can get to it now. <laughs> um, 
um, the subject has been has been has been broached. Um, yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. Um, um, like, uh, I think. Um, I mean, it, it it's interesting to me. There's a distinction between um, art's conception of the conversation going on, and then the public looking in at art and what they like. I think that people in the arts have an idea of themselves that that what they're offering is kind of like moral and intellectual leadership of people. And if they don't think that art offers that, they think it should. And a lot of the conversation rotates around that. And then these studies that that people do of like, what what do the, the audience want from art right now? And the answer is entertainment and distraction. I mean, it's not ambiguous. Like the the main thing people are hoping for um, when audience when museums reopen is distraction, things to do with their kids, beauty, um, all the things that are kind of like not that interesting <laughs> to to the professional art public. Um, you know, which is very right now um, and and as it should be important, very important um, conversation that's unfolding um, is, you know, about the whiteness of the art world, trying to redress the various forms of structural inequity and, and power that are going on. Um, it's interesting that all that's happening, you know, when it's all closed. And I think that that's, that's like, like to a certain extent, you're able to have like clearer conversations about this stuff because the normal machinery is stalled. Um, and I mean, I would broadly agree with all of Colin Cotter's um, points there. Those are the things that mattered, like with a capital M in art. Um, I do have some questions about like how that conversation plays out because even though these are extremely important, um, like the question, the, the question of monuments, for instance, is a really big central one in the art world. Um, but I just want to be really careful how I say this, but there are ways in which I think it's a deflection in like that. I think that there's this underlying issue of like how fucked up and um, unequal things are. And these like, imbalances of power that replicate themselves generation after generation are based on deep-seated things and political structures that are inaccessible and um and uh, racist institutions like the po like policing and um, housing that are intractable and based on giant policy questions and you need to marshal these huge coalitions in order to change them and then um move these movements appear that are like throwing that into relief and challenging them. And they hit at a certain, certain point very quickly, hit up against the wall of the intransigence of, of, of those deeper things. Like they, they, these are gonna be really long-term hard things. And the culture industry is like, how can we help? And monuments, for instance, are a really good, a really promising target because it's like in this realm with symbolic, there are these clear cut, very racist monuments to challenge, but then, but then in not very 
long time that the, the kind of cultural industries kind of transform these bigger conversations about like social deep-seated social structures into these conversations that are very more and more narrowly focused on symbolism you know so there is a way that it sort of does you know so you end up with having had these giant movements to um transform society and you look at the what came out of it and a lot of it is we took down monuments we changed the name on the street and stuff which you know i think everybody would agree is not doesn't get to the root of the problems you were you started out going after and so you know without being in any way against the conversation about monuments because i think it's really important but i do have a question about whether or not like like i do think you should interrogate how you talk about them and what kind of emphasis you're giving to that conversation and 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 um whether you're kind of abetting um institutions of power that are trying to turn the conversation into more places that are, have like more easily resolved um, um, outcomes. That yeah. sense? I mean, I have two quick responses to that. I'll try to keep them as sort of brief as possible. But if we shift from monuments to say the Gustin exhibition, where if Gustin is sort of the monument, mm -hmm. um, there was so much debate around that. But you're right then. I mean, what it ran up against is the fact that the museum itself, the institution was sort of so white, the staff was so white that they didn't have in place a diverse you know, curatorial staff to be able to at least say we can address uh, or contextualize the work with our own staff. I mean, it really just sort of deflect, like forced us to look at how that museum is structured and making changes to that structure is much more difficult and is a very sort of small or just a, a different take on that. Um, I was one of the signatories on a letter that uh, was supporting the, the folks at Dismantle Noma, who you know are trying to change the museum itself in New Orleans, which um, has been sort of described as being run like a plantation. I mean, it's an all white staff in the majority black city. And you're absolutely right. Even just to change that cultural institution, right? Which is just a kind of reflection or, or comes out of the society that produced it is going to be slow, painful, hard work. And that's, you know, just a, a, a cultural institution. That's not law or policy or the kind of things we're, you know, probably really agitating in need. Um, but, you know, I think it's hard for me at least to separate the conversations around the monuments, the desire to kind of remove and change those from the cultural institutions and the kind of structures that um, sort of produce culture um, that you're, I, I think you're right to some degree that you know there is a an effort by the museums to change the art or the programming or the artists without sort of changing themselves and how they're structured because I, I I was just reading about something else the other day where there's uh, a residency in Tulsa where the residents had to sign a non-disclosure agreement so that if there were issues happening within the residency they weren't necessarily able to even kind of speak out against those things and for me that that kind of represents the asymmetry, um, at least from an artist's perspective, with the institutions we're dealing with. So, you know, I, I guess I have a couple things, and I'm not sure like how to thread them in, but I, you know, I have been, um, I have mentioned some of these things before on the on the podcast, but um, I always go whenever we talk about um, monuments, particular public monuments, I always go back to the essay that I wrote, uh, read um, 
maybe at the beginning of, of last year that um, was written by Gretchen Romero. Uh, um, uh, I can't remember the last part of her name, but she, she, um, she wrote about public monuments in um, Puerto Rico and the kind of um, different roles that they had. So uh, on the one hand, you had like these mass movements that we were talking about, like Ricky Martin um, doing these concerts for change and, and this having a very big presence in amongst the public and being very popular. But then you also had these monuments that you know, crumbling infrastructure could not care for. And they were, and, you know, these like giant sculptures that are falling apart are kind of viewed as nuisances, right? Like, so art on the one hand, it's like useful for social change when it's like kind of a grass movement, a grass roots movement, but then like the more kind of institutionalized stuff in some ways it ends up, um, reflecting the institutions themselves. It's like crumbling and falling apart. Um, and the degree to which I think, um, you know, these, the degree to which we can separate like um, social movements or like um, different types of social change and the institutions sometimes to me feels like they, they can be um, very siloed movements. So for example, I was talking to someone um, yesterday about um, how they had instituted um, stacked moderation in their Zooms and that had been, um, I, I had a huge impact. And so for those who, uh, um, who have not heard about this, basically what that means is um, if there's a Q&A section in a Zoom uh, session, um, people of color um, would be given the opportunity to speak first if they uh, if there's like a cue, and then that, that then sort of um, that sort of conscious effort to make sure those voices are heard um, makes um, also just makes the conversation flow a little bit better, um, and. To me, like that, those sorts of sort of conscious, I haven't seen that kind of conscious effort happening, um, but like the degree to which um, that kind of trans, like these kind of smaller things translate into um, like larger social change seems to be a big question mark. Like, you know, does it sort of, stay something that is sort of siloed in, in sort of progressive wings and, and doesn't catch on culturally. Yeah, I mean, I look, I mean, I, I've been in spaces that do stack moderation for a decade or more. <laughs> I mean, it's a very common thing in activist circles. Um, those activist circles often, it often, it exists though, because there's a pre-existing problem of a minority underrepresentation. Um, and you know, white dude overrepresentation in those in those conversations. I mean, it's 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 a it's a band aid fix on a on on a, on a deeper thing. I, I don't know. Something this year in particular has made me think about is really think is how you know progressive politics, left wing politics, you know, the, the the spectrum from liberal to radical politics is so defined and captured 
by culture, by the culture industries, by like the kind of people who are culture consumers, who are acculturated to college educated uh, norms and customs in ways that mean that like all of the conversations about politics um, that are filtered through these spaces of that are captured by nonprofits and captured by cultural entrepreneurship and stuff immediately like seize on the cultural part of whatever it, whatever the issue of the day is and start amplifying that so that the conversation becomes more and more focused on the interpersonal aspects of 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 the problem on the symbolic aspects of the problem and when some of this stuff um like just to come back to something you were saying earlier William Bahida you know it's not it's not just I, I'm not saying it's not just that museums are like oh we're going to focus on the programming but what we really need to deal with is like staff composition um it's like it's like if you break down I mean I, I guess this has been going back to my book and the art world goes through waves of these conversations of self-scrutiny. You know, is, we're in a particularly intense one right now and a particularly thoroughgoing one and one that's gotten some results. Um, but it's not a new thing. I mean, there's like these, these, these cycles and they tend to be like periods of extremely heightened awareness and then kind of the wave recedes and there's a return to pattern. And I think whenever it comes up, the assumption in the conversation is always like, oh, we need to think about this. The problem isn't that people aren't thinking about the various problems with this space. You know, we need to like be faithful to the thought and like, but that is like textbook idealism. You know, if I want to use Marxist jargon, like the problem isn't bad ideas. Bad ideas are part of the problem, but the bad ideas are inculcated and flourish or, or the good ideas are easy to forget because the space is shaped a certain kind of way. So if you're like, oh, well, curator is the whitest profession, well, that links back to the fact that it's also one of the most lowest paid professions, you know, and yeah. there are existing much larger imbalances of wealth and um, educational access that mean that like the pools of people being channeled into those things are, are, um, are smaller. And some of that can be fixed by like, you know, attention to just like psychic interpersonal cultures, cultural stuff, like, you know, sensitivity training and, uh, and, um, and uh, you know, having better channels of, of grievance for people having um, um, caucuses or, or staff groups of, of staff of color um, or, or women or, um, and so on. But, but, but uh, some of it's not going to be fixed by that, you know? Oh, so some, some of it's going and, 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 and so to, to the way that to, 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 to transform the conversation that really focuses on this, those aspects that are like, the most accessible to a cultural conversation inherently means that you're having a, a partial conversation and you keep coming up with this thing where the problem appears, isn't solved. And then the next level people are like, well, people just didn't, you know, didn't think hard enough or, or, and then it becomes a more and more intractable kind of like impossible to, to build a coalition for like longer term, deeper change or directing those energies. I hear you. One thing I want to respond to is that the 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 work that I've sort of been doing <laughs> with this union group that I can't hmm. share too many to hear about that. specifically about who's involved. You know, this is work that you know it's not public facing yet, 
But one thing I can say right away, it's, it's not captured yet by any sort of institution or part of the culture industry. And <clears throat> we can do multiple things at once, like have a progressive stack for discussions and build that into um, how people communicate and whose voices are privileged and pushed back. At the same time, <clears throat> we can also recognize that like we're, we're, we have to work on labor and policy you know, when we're talking about unionizing at museums, we're also talking about the fact that security guards legally can't unionize with the rest of the museum staff yeah. because they're there protecting the property of the institution. And that, you know, our whatever we can do politically <clears throat> is going to be need to need to be connected to larger political movements and organizations. Right. And so, I mean, it's one of the things where we're really focused on labor and and the work and then how that is operating within institutions where there is racial inequity and wealth inequity. Um, and so, you know, having conversations with people, you know, former employees at NOMA, you know, like for them to get the museum to actually commit to an anti-racist agenda was the first time they'd done that publicly. And that, you know, it's like, how do we push that boulder from thinking uh, or, or trying to be address these things to actually making the changes? And, oh, yeah. You know, I think that I guess that. Oh yeah, and, and 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 just to be clear, I mean, because look, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, white man speaking here. I I, I know I'm aware that that I, I don't like. I I want to take a back seat. I mean, I'm giving you thoughts I'm having mm -hmm. as I'm processing these conversations. But I mean, like I'm processing them generally, like trying to you know be helpful and amplify the voices that I can. Um, but um, I do think that labor is the key. But to like, as in, like, I think that historically, this is something I'm writing about right now. I mean, the cultural turn in left politics appears in the post 70s um, period. And it specifically appears as labor becomes, you know, more and more um, amorphous and evaporated by neoliberalism. So, pretty much, the more progressive thought has captured art artistic spheres is like almost like the flip or the corollary of the decline of union organization. So that for instance, the democratic party, you know, used to capture, you know, used to be really based in, in, in organized labor. Now it's like, now it's like based in educated urban people, you know, <laughs> uh, professionals essentially, mainly non-unionized professionals. So the point is, but um, you know, when, you know, intersectionality is a buzzword, but in the full and, serious sense of it it's like this really important and useful concept and like the the, the questions of the um uh, oppression and inequality um you can't organize labor without like uh, without without you know having those things front and center and and it's i mean the people at the new museum i know that like the new museum union in some way came out of me too you know <laughs> they literally they're having workshops around 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 me too and you know was, well i don't want to tell their story but i mean i'm pretty sure that it came out of um, um conversations about how sexual harassment um played out in it complaints around um inappropriate behavior by by men in the in the staff played out and then thinking about what the mechanisms were to address that and that naturally leads to the question of power Mm -hmm. and how you like assert it as workers. Now, the best thing I say in this sort of chapter of the conversation is that 
museums are really fragile space to do all this. Like, I do think that for me, that that organizing of staff, you know, to assert kind of counter power is like the most promising thing, partly because it, um, by definition, because these people are being organized through like United Auto Workers and so on, like brings those staffs into contact with like broader forms of politics, you know, that people have to look to the precedent and the organizing strategies that kind of exist within, but also outside the art world. So you get like a much broader conversation. You have actual like means of asserting forms of collective power and solidarity um, and addressing and addressing um, um, grievance that's not just based around the interpersonal, but based around having actual like structural power and checks on, on problems. So that's like, to me, the very most promising thing is these like things going on in museums or within academia for, for that matter, where, you know, people can organize and become an example where it's like, we have this tiny little quirky, silly sphere of museums and culture, but we're setting in, like, we're using our quirks to set yeah. an example that like could, could, you know, help yeah, other people true. required to do the same. But I would just say that it's a very fragile and contradictory terrain to, to, to organize on because, you know, I think in the art world, people are like, oh, museums are the big bad. You know, they're the bosses, you know, that that's the, the final boss is the museum director, because that's where like the ultimate, you know, institutional power is, but museums are actually incredibly fragile institutions. The story of 2020 is like museums kind of falling apart, you know, being like hit from one side and the other side and like not being able to kind of respond. Um, and they're all nonprofit institutions, you know, and in a capitalist world, profit is the key. And so all of these institutions are parasitical on, you know, exploitation that happens elsewhere, the masses of wealth that are moved around. So like, there's an ultimate kind of structural check on, on like how much you can do within these organizations. I mean, you shouldn't try, but there's always the Marciano Foundation looming over you, you know, the institution in Los Angeles where people tried to unionize and the people who owned it, the guest jeans founders are just like, you know what, we don't really like unions, uh, goodbye. You know, we're shutting down the whole thing down. And because they can do that, they have that kind of power. So it doesn't mean don't try, I mean, like you should try, um, it's what we've got. It's where there's a certain kind of implantation um, of ideas and a certain per- percolation of energies. But it's like, it's like, to me, the conversation that goes on within and sort of beyond it is 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 really important. Yeah. No. No. And the, none of these issues are separate. You're you're. You but could, I need a bit to get in, Patty. Wait. Yeah. What? It's like you're chomping at the bit to get in. Oh no! I. <laughs> um. I was mentioned. I was just going to mention that um, in response to the idea that there was um, about directors sort of being the figureheads for this. I think one thing that um, is sort of revealing actually is that um, like the real kind of like moral center of a museum is always the registrar's office. Those yeah. are the people that like do the unsexy stuff. They deal with the like like. Um, laws and litigious stuff. And those are, it's like an unsexy job. So nobody it's ever- know what like, a registrar does. Yeah, well, I mean, people don't really know what they do. Work and comes in, work comes out. They're filling out loan agreements. They're making sure, you know. But it is larger than that though, because they are the ones that will tell a director like, no, you can't spend your money that way, mm. you know? So like, 
Um, but they are, I think they sort of fall into a sort of gray area that's that, that feels like sort of work, like a mix of like working class and like sort of white collar work that um, means that they are kind of traditionally like their role is just not really acknowledged for the significance that it has. Um, now, what that has to do, that directly to my mind has to do with um, labor, what it has to do with labor organizing is like perhaps. Yeah, I mean, they're, 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 that's connected to, I mean, I think that that goes to a question of authority and Ben's written about this and talked about yes. this, that part of, you know, a class analysis is, is, is the authority people have and registrars have a lot of authority within museums, even if it's not at the level of the director with the commensurate, you know, six figure salary. But I think the one thing I want to respond to Ben is that the museum industry and the culture industry might be relatively small compared to like Disney and the kind of mass culture entertainment spectacles, but it does have that kind of symbolic authority. Mm -hmm. And if, if museums and, and workers can uh, unionize in ways that improve upon previous <laughs> unionization efforts um, that are inclusive and that like do reach out and try to take care of the security guards who tend to be the people of color in the museum staffs and not just leave them out in the cold and say fend for yourselves. Um, you know, I think, I think it could set a really strong example that, that does carry some of perhaps the unearned <laughs> moral weight of art, because I just, you know, uh, I don't disagree with that at all. I mean, I mean, that's the one thing you have is symbolic, uh, symbolic authority. And I think there's actually a little bit of, you know, well, I think that, the intellectual conversation around art is very, very confused right now because yes. because there's because there's also you know this critique of art um, around elitist lines, but that the elitism, you know, the intellectualism of art is inseparable from its symbolic prestige. But then there's a kind of a attack on art for being intellectual and not being accessible. But then when museums take their turn towards you know like oh we're going to do a Van Gogh light show, everyone's like no. no. Like, no, but it's like, hey, that 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 does bring in the crowds. I mean, that so it's like it's just very unsettled and maybe this takes us into the next part of the conversation about you know, like the entertainment oh, turn, the memification of art, and all that stuff. But I think we would be remiss if we didn't just at least note that, like, part of it's not just the labor, right? It also it, it does involve the art and the whole deaccessioning debate, particularly around the Baltimore Museum of Art, where you had like Christopher Knight coming out really stridently saying it's absolutely wrong morally wrong for this museum to sell work in the public trust to fund their budgets, you know? And then you have someone like Nikki Columbus waving her hand saying, you know, like, hey, wait a minute, you know, are we putting art before people and labor and work? And I think that's one of the areas where it's been really difficult, you know, where I've To me, that's, a, that's an example where both are right, you know? And that's like what you call, an, uh, you know, a, a contradiction of capitalism, yeah. which is, you know, I, I, is, Again, it's Marxist jargon, but there's a reason why it's it's a cliche yeah. and it's jargon is that like there are uh, 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 contradictions that are thrown up by the situation that it's not actually clear how you transcend that on the level of the museum itself. Like right after the, the pandemic happened and there was like this people were talking about a new depression, which still probably on the horizon. It's just sort of like um, slower, slower moving than maybe people thought um, people were like, well, we need a new deal for the arts. Which to me is like, okay, that's that's basically true. You and I were on like, uh, you know, educational conference calls about this conversation, um, Bill. And and like, 
um, to me, it's like, okay, well, that's the beginning of a conversation because like there are certain things that museums just can't resolve on their own terms, you know? Um, like you can't get rid of all the problematic patrons, pay all the staff more, you know, institute all these new programmings in order to be more responsive to different, uh, 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 you know, diverse audiences and, and, and underrepresented cultures. Um, and, um, and every other thing, you can't do it all at once because there's things are all in contradiction with each other. Um, it's just an intractable problem. And people have kind of taken the strategy of just throwing all the problematic things at museums at once because there's no real center or organizational center to like, to like uh, levy demands on these institutions, which essentially since they're all mutually incompatible demands just leaves the people in power to, they just like pick which of the demands they're gonna, is the most, you know, doable. <laughs> you know, um, and, and so, you know, you're letting, and the only way out of that is if you find another center of power, which probably is, is the government for art, you know? Um, right, well. The problem is, is that like people don't have a real understanding of the New Deal art programs or what the New Deal was for art. And it didn't just come about because of like, you know, good ideas or something. It came out because the 1930s were times of, tremendous organizing and uh, particularly labor organizing and that changed the calculus of what was possible. Um, and I just, you know, I think it's pretty obvious that's not gonna happen, um, which is gonna leave these problems that the, we spent the year kind of having these zero sum back and forth debates on, they're just gonna get, these problems are just gonna get more intractable. Yeah, you know? I, I'm not terribly, you know, I mean, I, I paid attention to the debates, but I just certainly didn't get worked up into a lather or, or start, you know, spouting off on social media about them because you're right, they are contradictions of capitalism. These aren't things that can all be magically wiped away or changed all at once. Um, that's why I think, you know, the strength of union organizing and rooting the changes in the specific demands and needs of the workers and institution, you can start chipping away at some of those things, right? Whereas like a big Warren Kander situation at the, like the Whitney, you know, getting a, a board member removed, that took, you know, like a year of action and constant protest to do one thing, right? And like, there's different tactics and ways of doing this, but to to have to have any real hope, it has to be a long-term organized effort that is going to take many institutions, workers across institutions, and and having that central place or places to like organize their efforts. Because we can't do this sort of you know cert certainly individually as workers, and we can't do it per on a per museum basis. You know, I mean, this is, and I I think one thing that's really interesting in our period is that you know, we, we can talk more about this too, is that we've removed the whole social aspect of the art world, which has freed up a lot of time for this kind of work. And because of the pandemic, a lot of artists got unemployment. You know, a lot of people that otherwise wouldn't have the money and the time to do this work have had months to, to do some of this in ways in which uh, just had been impossible when, when, when people are just trying to, you know, survive. And so I know this is also sort of temporary, that when things do return to normal and people have to get back to work in the same ways, I don't think we're gonna see the same ability uh, of, for people to kind of continue to organize. So I don't know, you know, there is a, there is a, a, a clock on some of this work happening. 
Well, part of the part of the book, Patty, sorry. Two things. One, one um, I think, William, somewhere you had in your, in, um, just to our listeners, we have some notes that we put together before each, um, each episode. And in our notes, William, you have somewhere that, um, like, there's this sense that things are just going to go back to normal. But, it, you know, I'm, based on what you're saying, I'm wondering, like, where is this sense coming from? Because, and like, is this a sense that you have? Because I, I don't know that. Um, by, by normal, I think I was describing what I was sort of talking about when, when uh, there's no more, you know, federal <laughs> extension for unemployment benefits. And, you know, there's a vaccine and there's, uh, you know, people have to get back to work to pay the rent. You know, when there's no more of these kind of like tenuous, precarious protections we have right now, that's been one of the most unusual things. And I think, you know, the amount of people that we saw in the streets for the George Floyd protests or on the flip side, the crazy Trumpers taking their guns to, you know, the Michigan courthouse is in part subsidized by the kind of pandemic relief and the, the sort of the, the amount of time that people had to sort of participate politically in ways that we might find radical or totally disagree with, seems unusual, right? And when right. I say normal, I mean like, you know, post-vaccination, you know, back to pay your own way 100%. Yeah, and to, I mean, the other thing is, is like we haven't, like the that relief package ended in like August. I I don't know to what degree you're, like you know people who are really suffering now because they don't have those benefits anymore um there are definitely a few people on my, like who are on that list but then you know i'm starting to see galleries really um complain on twitter about this too um which i guess is my obviously this my main uh, social medium and i'm just wondering like you know um as a question to both of you, like how bad is it for galleries and artists out there right now? Um, people who don't have those loans who need them. Like, are we gonna start seeing a second wave of closings? Was there a first wave? I mean, I don't think there was, a, there haven't been a ton of closings yet. And I think, I, I feel like- Nonprofits. Nonprofits, couple. Yeah, yeah, there were a couple. Art in general, you know. This one, but they they seem to be. And on, they like, were in trouble before the tenant tenant uh, tenant museum. I, I feel like you know, but that's the thing is that I don't know. I don't know, Patty. I, the the uh, art world's kind of veil of secrecy works against it here in terms yeah. of how much you, you you sympathize with it. So much of it is a bluffing game. <laughs> and, you know, no one wants to buy you know, a fire sale art because, you know, the entire mythology of art is like that you're getting something no one else could have. It's like rare secret commodity. Um, so. Um, Various like, databases. I mean, I've been <laughs> saying, my, my, my feeling is I've been saying um, that, you know, uh, you know, there's this moment of panic in, 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 in March and April when like, oh, the bottom's dropping out. It's like a new depression and all this stuff. And then there actually was government relief, but it's not enough. And it's like in this weird way and our government's in total breakdown and our social institutions are thin. And, you know, we're just in late imperial decline. That's just, you know, 
And my feeling is, you know, that we are, the car has crashed into the water, but the water hasn't entered the car yet. You know, that, that, that there yeah. was a moratorium on evictions. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody's holding on in various kinds of ways. And, you know, we'll just see. I think that in some ways, one of the effects of the current situation, it will be what the effects of crisis always are, is that it, it, it exaggerates whatever the contradictions are that are already there. So we know that before the crisis, that the middle was really hurting. You know, and not just in art, but in every cultural industry. You know, yeah. there's like a there's like an article about the 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 um, catastrophe in the fashion industry that the Times put together. It was pretty deeply reported, and it was kind of eerie to me how much it echoed art. You know, that like there was this unsustainable cycle of like global production and short lots of production of stuff nobody wanted, and like there are like the big Goliaths who are doing well. And there's the middle layer who's kind of like thinks they're doing well or thinks the next thing is going to put them ahead. And then the crisis comes and it kind of like, you know, you, 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 all those contradictions come to the surface. And my guess is that would be what happens that the big get bigger. And, you know, we enter even the mega galleries consolidate even further and become these new kinds of entities. And, you know, there's, without some way to change this, um, the underlying dynamic, I think it's gonna be really hard. On the other hand, oh, and and then, I mean, the last thing, not the last thing, but a thing to say is like, the other big effect is like, a lot of these, a lot of the galleries that can have opened up output posts in Palm Beach or the Hamptons, (laughs) just directly implanting themselves in the place where all the rich people fled which to me is like okay so that's like if that happens if that's the trend coming out of this that's really like one of the last things it's like taking away one of the last um the last kind of like ways you could think about the 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 commercial art world as as good you know as possibly say it's like like because like you know there's all these bad things about it you know where it's like okay so the it's like just kind of like a tax scheme for the rich and it's a dumping ground for wealth and it's like insanely privileged and it's like out of touch and it's all these things you know um and then but you can say like all that stuff subsidizes like these like a free cultural sphere that has like yes. a, a civic yeah. function that you know people can circulate among and i don't know take their date on a friday night to an opening and if that just like <laughs> if that if you know if you know your college kids can't go get free wine <laughs> at, at a gallery um, and you know edify themselves a little um without any cash and it's just all out in the hamptons with people you know then that's just like the last thing. That's the, yeah. the last thing where you could possibly say this is a sympathetic, a sympathetic sphere. Well, and, and this is this is one of the questions we had for you, Ben, and for Patty, um, is that we've seen these changes, you know, happening to the art world in the pandemic. And the question is, if there is a kind of return to normal in a post-vaccine era, um, um, what what changes from the pandemic might stay permanent? Right, like we. 
now for the last nine months or so, you know, all the good things, let's say about all the social things about art have been taken away. No openings, no free wine, no little after dinners, no hanging out at the bar with other artists and chatting, no running into strangers. If that becomes permanent because the galleries have decamped to the Hamptons where I'm not going, you know, maybe once a year sleeping on a, somebody's, you know, guest room, uh, you know, that's not happening. I'm not going down to Palm Beach. I hope I never find myself there. Does that you know, leave us with like experience art? And that's, that's what well, we get. You, you've taken away permanently that which kind of sustains most artists, which isn't the sales or even the exhibitions. It's the going to seeing the artwork. And if that leaves say New York, why would we stay here? You know, it reminded me of a conversation years ago when a patron at the Headlands was like, hey, I think it's really great that all the artists, you know, are moving to Detroit and making their work there. And then they have to ship it to New York or other cities to show it. You know, I mean, this is like a reverse of that, where you have a lot of artists still in New York, but if there is no infrastructure of, of galleries to show and share and talk about and discuss work, yet it, I, I agree with you, Ben, 100%. That's like a final step before the art world just fully separates into yeah, mega the galleries. The Death Star is fully yeah. operational at that point. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It, you know, I'm sure there'll be some DIY basement spaces and, you know, pop-up galleries and projects happening for artists, but it's not the same as being able to go to Tribeca and see 35 the, the, galleries. DIY spaces in the basement galleries are usually always there. I mean, there's yeah. always like a new crop of young people who are like, like, fuck it, I'm going to do like arty stuff with my friends. And, you know, like that they, you know, people have just culture that they create with each other, a, like no profit no just and that's you know, <laughs> not, not thinking about a career and that's the, the perpetual energy engine on which culture runs it's that like every moment produces new texture new references and and there are new young people who who emerge who you know create their own language specifically you know to be opaque to the people who, who, who aren't of their generation and that looks really meaningful to the people who who um, are looking for a symbolic language to articulate their 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 sense of being in the world and that that stuff just is gonna happen it's but it's never been that stuff that's the problem and it's not that the top stuff is the problem although i think that stuff is more fraught than people know i think that you know that, that's you know christie's and Sotheby's don't make any money you know, they're, they're bad businesses. Sotheby's <laughs> was taken off the stock exchange because it was just, you know, it's like it's all prestige and no, 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 no. You know, people just have it look. It's just a Potemkin village. <laughs> but, um, but, but the point is, it's the middle. It's the middle. It's the middle. That's the problem. Yeah, it's the middle. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's what those young. It's what those young people do when they turn thirty. Right. You know, is what. Yeah, what do you do with your accumulated cultural capital? Um, and um, is there a teaching job for you? Is there a, uh, is there, is, are there enough people who support you that you can like have a life um, and not, and that, that's, that's, you know, has enough free time and mental space in it to continue to, 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 to think about the world and, and your art, artistic practice? Um, and not just the, the raw dynamics of, of hustling. Um, it's those kind of things that, that, are, that, are, that are in jeopardy. I mean, and that's just the pattern of American life is that like, is that uh, everything is reorganized around catering to the, 
the very, 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 very top slice of things. And that produces all these extreme, extreme, um, extreme difficulties um, that are kind of without, without some kind of like swerve or, or turn in the fundamental kind of trajectory of society. Like that's just, those just accumulate. Um, I don't know. I mean, what do you think in terms of what's going to stick around? What's going to stay from this time? I mean, I think that people are honestly, I don't, I think mainly it shows you how, what a poor substitute digital stuff is for, for, um, or the social stuff. And, and, and you may end up with, with, um, an increased focus on actual like local institutions where people can actually meet up when you finally can meet up. I, I hope that's the case. Um, so that would be like a, an effect, but not a continuation of, of this time period. A lot of the, a lot of the, hopefully a lot of the conversations about equity and, 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 and um, you know, doing things differently will, will go on. Um, you know, it's, you know, one of the, it's ambiguous to me whether they will, um, but uh, I ho hopefully that's that's here to stay. Um, yeah, I, I am too, Ben. I mean, we've we've been doing some work behind the scenes that's again not public for close to ten months, and we're on the verge of having some bylaws that would concretize. Yeah, artist union. Yeah, uh, an arts union that that hopefully will will outlast the pandemic and will outlast the kind of cycle to do advocacy, provide resources and be that thing for artists because you know, we'll never be a traditional union. We don't have an employee relationship in most cases as visual artists, but we can do a lot of things for other employee-based unions and, and kind of fill in some gaps where the arts, visual artists traditionally just don't have any recourse. So, you know, I, I do hope, I share that hope with you that like there'll be some some way to sustain that work because there's yeah. a long history yeah. of- That's very optimistic to me. I mean, like, is the, the institution building component of it. Because I tend, I actually have an article I wrote about the, um, the destructive effect of social media on organized politics that, that is coming out in Salvage magazine soon. Um, that I do think that, again, this is the deflection towards communication that when everything is organized around, you know, like everybody's, everybody's default political position is as an artist slash symbolic operator slash, you know, communications entrepreneur slash pundit. And like, that is, that is, you know, what is role modeled constantly as like the model of politics. Well, it's just a very atomized thing of politics and all, it's just a million voices arguing with each other. And, and it's the institutions that it's like, as in organizations that'll, it'll make these things last. Um, and otherwise you just get like kind of these like, you know, trend of the moment things that, that um, explode and then like collapse. And um, they, to a certain extent have a, a, a character of like, of like placeholders for, for of like um, placeholder conversations. And, um, or kind of like, yeah, I mean, it just that energy, you know, people without the institutional memory of some kind of organization or some kind of group of like-minded people, like kind of trying to stick it out, um, train leaders and 
cadres of people to kind of like take these conversations forward. It's like, you know, even me, you know, everybody has difficulty remembering what you were angry about three weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. Of new things. And, and, and I'm part of it because I'm part of the media, you know, like, this is the media's business model. <laughs> you know, it was like amplifying whatever the next thing is. And right. so- is, it, is it possible that we are reaching a point of social media fatigue? Like Instagram has basically been turned into like a real shopping bag. You know, Facebook, nobody uses anymore for groups. And even that I think is kind of useless. Twitter, um, I... I don't know what the usage is, is there. Um, I mean, certainly there's a lot of politics that takes place on Twitter and and media folk, but like I increasingly can't use it because it's just a fucking doom scroll every day. Yeah. yeah. So I'll tell you, Patty, parlor's where it's at. I mean, (laughs) no shit. Every day for the last few, for, oh, yeah. for those who don't know what Parler is, it's basically an offshoot of Twitter for like the extreme right right brain. Um, Your alternative universe. So. Yeah. So now my Twitter feed is filled with Parler screenshots. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I feel like there may be increasingly are people choosing to opt out of this? Is this like just wishful thinking on well, part? I mean, I think it's exhausting. Yeah, I mean, I think, and that's, I mean, just to bring it back to the art conversation, I mean, that's a very, um, like, um, relevant conversation. And I mean, I think there's there's always been this ambiguous relationship of art to social media, right? Where on the one hand, which is, on the one hand, it's like clearly cultural, you know? Like, it's like, there's clearly you know, memes and, you know, conversations going on and like, and there's a kind of culture inculcated by it. You know, it's like people develop subcultures and, and, and things. So there's this artistic dimension to social media that's like begs to be like engaged with. And at the same time, like it's kind of inhospitable for art, you know, because precisely because it's, it is its own kind of culture and art's its own kind of culture. And they actually don't, they have kind of like different destinations and ideas of what a symbol does and idea. And, and so there's always been this kind of tension between these things where as, you know, the, one of the lessons of the social media kind of age in the last 10 years for me has been to throw into relief this social dimension of art as a distinctive thing, you know? Like on one hand, there's an interpenetrate. I mean, you guys are both social media pioneers in a way. You know, you've been in, you've been generating conversations around art for a really long time. But at the same time, I do think that, um, and particularly now that you, all you have is a social media conversation, you do really realize, like we were talking about before this call started, like there are these social dimensions to what art is as a community that aren't replicated at all by these things the kind of like the kind of just you know physical material institutional reality and of being around other people and kind of like um everything that's on social media is public slash public slash private so there's a certain kind of sense that that um everything's a performance no one really 
you know, there's no real, there's this combination of total intimacy and no intimacy on it. And um, it's really changed the, the way things go. So I, I definitely think that there's social media fatigue. And I've always sort of thought that like um, the most promising, you know, art is probably most promising channel for art to go around to is to more self-consciously develop itself as a, as an alternative social network as like a physical community um and to a certain extent even before the pandemic um there was you know what was the hot thing in art before the pandemic witchcraft i mean <laughs> it's the occult it's magic and it's it's yeah. all these things that are like opting out of the technological uh, rationalist conversation um, about presence and being present and, you know, like things that are like both in dialogue with it because there's like a really Instagram friendly occult and Instagram friendly James Terrell installations that are about perception, but then also kind of about the embodied experience of being alternative to it. And that's like, I think a pretty consistent pattern in art history where it's like every time you have these moments of like upheaval where the news is really thick and things become more technological all of a sudden, like in the 60s, you get conceptual art on the one hand, the other hand, you get like new age spirituality. But this is where I think like the elements of self-care that were there before that I was talking about that I do feel like they're showing up in culture. Um, and like um, one of the, I mean, this feels a little crazy. It's a little off from art, but like one of the more um, important essays that I felt like I've read in the last month um, was the BTS uh, profile in Esquire. So BTS is the K-pop band that is basically the most popular music band in the world. And they're like trying to get a music award, basically, um, you know, an American music award. And the profile goes through and talks about how they had um, historically um, always created albums around specific social issues. Um, and this time they felt like they had done, they wanted to do something different. Um, and they, uh, they really like focused on um, mental health issues and self-care. And to me, that felt like, and they were like, you know, we, we feel like the cultural, mo like people right now um, need some care. Like it's too much to kind of needle people with they didn't say this, but like this was sort of the gist of it to needle people with like sort of specific um, actions, things like that, that, you know, what they felt they could do was to offer this kind of self-care. And I think that's like, I feel like that is something that is, you know, really um, kind of needed right now. And I, I guess partially that's my own response um, to this moment where I feel like I need more self-care than the average person, or not the average person, but the, the myself in the past versus myself now needs more kind of care. Um, and I feel like that's, uh, and I feel like it may also be part of, you know, what I'm doing with workshop.art, like that deals with professional training, but also deals with, uh, you know, just kind of figuring out how you take care of yourself um, in this particular set of circumstances. So um, so I think it is, I, 
I think it has been in the culture. Where, I think you see that though in the where you it's see emerging, it? and I hope that it's something that that stays. Um, but I also hope it's not something that we need permanently. Well, just really quickly, you know, that idea has been that question of like um, social media usage and how it's changing. I mean, the way I've been thinking about it, it's it's a form of self care to kind of step away from the toxicity of it to some degree, but it also is deeper than that. It's not just about like self-care. It's it's recognizing the fact that punditry or being a sort of t disembodied talking head and making points or arguing online is very different from the work of like organizing where yeah. you don't need to do that in public or maintain a brand or, you know, you can do this other kind of work offline or through Zoom. Um, and it doesn't require that kind of social media presence in the same way. And, and I think what's different about that too is that, you know, hopefully it's work that will produce care for more people. It doesn't feel like self-care work. It feels like kind of sure work well, that the community has to do for I mean, each other. I think they're connected because, I mean, I like that there's a the Loretta Todd article from New York Times, the, the calling out, calling in versus calling out. That I was made a pretty good distinction that like the idea of uh, you know the idea that if you disagree with something, what you want to do is have a uh, disagree with them in public, you know it, and that is honestly like uh, you know, I'm an art critic, so that's what you do. <laughs> it's like I mean you 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 kind of assume that like you see something and it's there for you to disagree with or, or agree with and kind of like give your informed um uh, such as it is informed opinion but now but but yeah i mean that's again the last uh 10 years have turned everybody into an uh not everybody but you know everybody who's on social media who's a has social media brain into information entrepreneur and so everybody is now and that has a certain utility and it can change the world in certain kind of ways that we've seen for the better on the other hand, there are limits to that kind of form. And I mean, it's a very simple point, but she, Loretta Todd, she just was like, um, uh, um, yeah, you can also call someone privately. <laughs> you can also be like, hey, I, I hear your point, but I value our relationship. So I don't want to have this conversation in public, but I really disagree with you. And I think you should reconsider how you phrase phrase yourself you know or you know i think that i think that you're um you know being uh i think that you're coming off as racist i think whatever and and that is a form of self-care as a well form of political intervention because your your networks are important you know <laughs> like the, the the kind of process of creating um uh, uh like like you know we're social creatures like one of my problems with self-care as a discourse is it's become really consumerist. It's very self-oriented, sure. right? It's like uh, buy yourself, um, you know, a manicure or something like this, and consider it a political act of, of holding. <laughs> which, which I mean, look, I think you know, like we talked about at the beginning of this, like there's been a lot of you know, just kind of like looking for ways to calm your thoughts and vanish into the culture, vanish into various forms of cultural consumption, and it's not unimportant, but it's also depressing um you are a social being so like being able to 
be in dialogue with people around culture in a constructive way is a form of, you know, taking care of yourself. <laughs> and if all there is around culture is a conversation that's about like people attacking each other over in public about their positions on things, then um, you kind of have eliminated culture as a place of nourishment. <laughs> which is one of the things it serves for people. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's a way that social media specifically and generally just the kind of like um, um, way culture has developed in general, um, people tend to read and assume everything as a statement that has kind of like, that um, is read almost as like, um, not as propaganda, but as like, a, like, people read it as something to be like, yes, voted or no voted. Like that's just the default way people look at culture is like, am I a yes or am I a no on this? And that's not really a very rich way of looking at culture. And like a lot of it, a lot of culture, a lot of the important things about culture are kind of like just testing out thoughts against something. It's like, how do I see this? Do I see how this person, like what thoughts made this valuable to them? Does, do I see it the same way as the other person? And the object is just like, is not the thing, is, is, is kind of like a prop in a social game in a way that you're like, I can see that you want to talk to Patty, so. Sorry, I'm just like thinking about the way that social media works and how like a lot of the game of social, or the, like the, the work of social media and like just sort of the internet in general is kind of narrowing choices, right? Because you have so many. But then when you look at like, the way that things are structured, like let's use um, Instagram as an example, they have a poll function that you can use. The poll literally only has yes or no. And if you're using it for marketing purposes, you only use yes and yes, right? So like that, like that is a complete narrowing in like starting from a place that is so large that, you know, people get completely overwhelmed to a space that is so small that you um, are forced to evaluate culture and whatever the, the particular thing is, is it in a yes, no, or worse, yes, yes scenario. So it's, a, it's I guess that, you know, I think like my point is that the things that you are describing are like really structural and, and baked into the, all of the software that we use. Yeah, and I mean, I think that there's been, you know, for, I mean, lots of reasons since 2016, um, there's a lot of reconsideration of social media. I don't think it's going away. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned BTS though, actually, now that I think about it, because I remember vividly, you know, um, in the in the late 20, in the late 2000s, you know, um, reading this article about Korea and about how ahead Korea was of us in like internet penetration and stuff. And people, um, right, started those like, yeah, in Korea, it's just, it's so wild. It's like everybody has their own web page, and you know, they'll just post like a photo of, of what they're eating and be like, hey, this is what I'm eating. And, and I remember reading that at the time, be like, wow, that is, who would ever do that? That's like, those people are from outer space. And then that's just, you know, that's just the most basic level of social media is people like just posting, just like micro blogging their day. Um, so, you know, maybe the BTS is really, uh, you know, 
I mean, I think the future as far as far as I think Rhea McManera, who's the curator at um, Hyperallergic, will have like a giant think piece at some point on BTS. But like she, in terms of a, a band that has completely mastered the internet, like they have these concerts where you can buy these like light bombs or something, and you like they're virtual concerts, and they're just completely scripted in these giant auditoriums that are like filled with like um it, like projections and like fake generated spaces and all the rest and like they'll switch to these like um giant screens filled with um people who have their light bombs like that are that just flash to the time of the music and you get like their album and it looks like an artwork um because the whole thing is packaged in this like completely beautiful way that comes with all kinds of like collectibles like if there is anybody that has like internet marketing down um and there is some collision with art i think it's this band although i have to say they did they did sponsor that global art show where they had artworks open in cities around the world including in like brooklyn bridge park i think i didn't get it at all i mean like i didn't know i didn't understand what the anthony gormley work they sponsored had to do with BTS at all, except that they were just like kind of acting as patrons for things. Yeah, I mean, maybe this is an interesting segue into, um, you know, because Patty, when you described the BTS concert, I'm thinking more Meow Wolf than yes. the public art project you're describing, Ben, like an Anthony Gormley piece, you know, like something that would function in the contemporary art world by itself, whereas Meow Wolf is something else entirely, that kind of immersive art experience, which, uh, you know, 2020 couldn't have been a good year for large scale immersive participatory works that you got to go to in person, right? Like, I don't think those things have been thriving uh, in the same way. Um, but that was something Patty had brought up, you know, you had your uh, culture review from like 2017 that was sort of talking about the new waves of immersive art installations. Um, and, and just in general, you know, that I guess that kind of shift um, towards bigger audiences and and experiences that sound more like a BTS concert um, than a traditional gallery show. And that that obviously has not, you know, really been an option this year. Um, and, and just a note to our listeners, the, the State of Culture's series of essays that Ben wrote was, um, I, I personally think it's one of the more important things that have been written in the last 10 years. I, um, anytime I teach a class, I teach them, um, I have them read that set of readings because I think it does a very good job of sort of setting up like where we came from, how people consume art and where we are now and um, how things have really shifted over the last in particular, it seems like 60, 70 years from, you know, a, a space where there was a sort of um, kind of more active um, sort of pushing back against um, the, you know, a wealthy class through things that, that were quote unquote unsaleable to where we are now. Ben, you're going to do like a much better job of talking about this, though. <laughs> What's the question? I mean, the question is about. Um, uh, question is about. Uh, well, I think like. Art, kind of questions about the immersive art conversation. 
pretty much like where are we like this was not a good year for immersive art does that mean we're done with that or does that what's, mean what's going to be what's going to be left over i mean like um um like as far as i'm concerned like that was the biggest trend in art before before this the, the pandemic age. I gave a lecture to JD Sampson's class at, at, at NYU just, just before, and I never got a chance to turn it into an article, but it was like looking like, what were the 2010s? Like, like, like what happened? And I would say that there are like, um, you know, I was thinking there are like four big trends that you could think of. There's kind of like um, the social practice conversation like that, like an art is activism. Um, the post-internet conversation, kind of art is commentary on the internet. The new representational painting conversation, kind of the Kinde Wiley, like figures of of underrepresented groups presented through through um, sort of the means or of traditional painting. And then there's the big fun art, immersive installation. Conversation. As far as I'm concerned, the big fun art conversation is very much like the dominant one of those. Like that's the one that all the other ones. Um, and well, partly because democratic. It's, happening, it's happening outside of the art world. You know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. It's the one that would potentially have the biggest audience. Potentially. I mean. Yeah, but I mean, like you have to explain it close in a way. You know, like, like, um, and you know, that's where a lot of you know, there's been a general breakdown in cultural institutions because of a combination of technological chains and inequality, where things are just more and more and more cent centralized, more and more um, dispersed and broken apart on one level, and then more and more centralized and concentrated on another level. And the, um, and into that void, you know, new kind of institutions in all the different kind of cultural sectors have popped up. And the kind of corporate art collective designed immersive installation thing just came from outside of the art world places like meow wolf in santa fe or team lab in japan and just rapidly accumulated such audiences that they were culture they were like just serious cultural forces i mean like hundreds of millions of dollars in in venture capital invested in them um and opening up chains of art installation, art, art, art things. Um, so I think even before the pandemic, all of those different trends had boiled over, you know, had like gone into become like a new kind of, of force. Um, so like the post internet art thing had kind of like dead ended into its own. Yeah. Uh, on its own, the teeth of its own contradictions. And then a lot of that energy just migrated into kind of like, uh, you know, um, just purely meme production, you know, oriented on the art world, but just pure meme production. The new representational painting kind of trend, you know, already there's just a big exhaustion amongst, I think, artists of color about the kind of demands to kind of represent your community. And so you saw this language, particularly in the last Whitney Biennial of like turning to opacity, you know, just lots of, lots of painting that's kind of like withdrawing from the audience, 
you know, um, uh, you know, Simone Lay creating these figures of uh, black figures that have no eyes and are kind of like very specifically about, you know, like this isn't, this is for like an audience of, of black women. It's not for, uh, uh, um, that's who it's for. And they're specifically representing an interiority that's inaccessible to, to the viewer. Um, and the, I think artist, the social practice conversation became just anti-museum activism, you know, and various forms of protest mediated through social media. Um, and to a certain extent, the um, big fun art conversation started out as art collectives, quickly became art corporations. And I think has already become, you know, just like a new form of entertainment. So my colleague, Brian Boucher, I think just did a story that's like, there are three different companies competing just to have Van Gogh light shows. Yeah. <laughs> oh there my God. Three different companies who all are promoting the same idea, which is an immersive environment um, of the, 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 where you just can walk into the paintings of Vincent Van Gogh. And I think that um, whether or not, you know, it persists as the same kind of like mass thing, it's here to stay because people really like it. Um, I mean, and uh, I, you know, the new fields, the, the museum in Indianapolis removed their floor of contemporary art in order to put in an immersive Van Gogh light show, or will will do next year. Announced that they're going to do it. Yeah. People are really angry, and the guy, the director, um, is like, "Well, I mean, like, this is what I got. I got to bring in the, uh, I got to bring in the the crowds. Um, I'm in Indianapolis. You know, I can't afford to get actual Van Goghs. You know, this this will do. And again, this is one of those places where I think that like museums, it's like a contradiction, like museums both are tasked with being mass institutions and being preservers of, of the heritage or some sort of, um, you know, intellectual uh, standard. And um, it's really hard to resolve that contradiction. And one of the ways it's gonna get resolved is, is through the way station of art themed immersive environments, which then I suspect will just become non-art themed immersive environments at the next level that are just, you know, just essentially laser shows. Or I mean, the, the question, we, we, we talked about this before we started recording a little bit that, and maybe it was earlier in the call, it's been so long, um, that, you know, what, what the audience wants, what the public wants is entertainment, kind of vacuous, emptying out of, of content to some degree. Well, I didn't say vacuous, entertainment's not vacuous. Not, not vacuous, I guess, but, you know, things I'm that escape into. Um, you know, and I think that that idea of like the way Meow Wolf is sort of corporatized and become a sort of very large corporation with a lot of investor money, so big that they've reproduced the problems of capitalism, where the workers have yeah. now to be unionized, yeah. you know, form a union. Uh, <laughs> like one of the CFOs or one of the COOs of the company said, I remember when I used to be an artist, you know, he's become a sort of corporate executive. Not just that, William, the, 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 I think I, I don't know, the CFO or what is on Biden's transition team? Oh my God. Okay. You know, it's, like, it's like they say like Biden transition, the, their commerce transition officials are like representing from Lyft, Uber. Yeah. yeah. 
there's, there's a couple of ways this collapses, though. We, we've been talking about this kind of consolidation at the top level of the art world, uh, but we're also seeing it in broader culture. Like we were talking about Disney earlier, you know, becoming all Star Wars, all Marvel shows, you know, where there's not an emphasis on new production of content, but the retelling of sort of familiar intellectual property. Oh, and yeah. I think that's a really important point because, like, you know, I mean, we've been in retromania phase for quite a while. Um, and, you know, people talk about this all the time in the world of movies, which is that, like, if you look at each year of the 2010s, if you look at the top 10 movies or whatever, each year, more and more of them are sequels or based on pre-existing um, intellectual property. You know, like the number of things that are originally, originally, original, um, original stories that that have become part of the culture that become that become big hits is lower and lower. And even number of of things that are original stories that are released to the mainstream theaters is lower and lower. And to a certain extent, there's a flip side of the fact that social media has so democratized, you know, image production that there's like tons of original stuff is percolating up at the bottom. But in terms of the culture industry, the stuff that's monetizable, it's more and more centralized about stuff people know. And so I was kind of thinking to myself, like, because it's never, it's art is always in an ambiguous relationship to this. Is it like, is it the same in art? Is it different? Like, where do you find that in art? Um, to a certain extent, artists are always, you know, their own original brands. So it's like less true, but then it's like, oh no, it's A, the places where art is really just repackaging pre-existing intellectual things people like and are familiar with in new ways is street art, mm. which is the most popular form of art on social media and probably the most popular form of cultural art with the most penetration where it's just, it's literally just like, here's the Monopoly guy and I've like, Right, painted him into a new environment, and people are like, "Oh, I remember the Monopoly guy. Yeah. So cool!" Oh, well, but this is the Monopoly guy, you know, like at a, you know, like, um, you know, uh, doing something vaguely weird, you know. Oh, cool! That's such a, you know, that's on the one hand where the retro mania kind of like cultural exhaustion aspect of art is, and then the other is these big fun art things, which is like. Yeah, I mean, like having a light show of Van Gogh is the equivalent of having a, for a museum of having, you know, like 10 Star Wars series on Disney Plus. Here ends part one of our episode of Explain Me, the year that wasn't. Join us for part two where Ben Davis joins us again, uh, where we discuss Disney, the role of entertainment and Art Club 2000.